This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Now and Not Yet. Pressing in when you're waiting, wanting, and restless for more. Written and narrated by best-selling author Ruth Cho Simons and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to the Grace Enough Podcast. I am your host, Amber Cullum. Thank you to those of you who have filled out the listener survey. Today, May 23rd, 2023, is the final day to help me out and be entered for a chance to win a $50 Amazon gift card. Visit graceenoughpodcast.com slash survey to participate. Today, I sit down with theologian, seminary professor, and author Nijay Gunta. We discuss women in the Bible and how they led, taught, and ministered in the early church, all of which comes from his book, Tell Her Story. Before you press pause or turn off the episode because I said women, taught, and church in the same sentence, I implore you to keep listening. Nijay handles this controversial topic with wisdom, courage, knowledge, and as someone who has read, studied, taught, and received their educational degrees in theology, divinity, and New Testament. He is not only qualified to speak on the topic, he brings some eye-opening insight to the conversation that just may impact your thought process as you read the Word. Good morning, Nijay, and welcome to the Grace Enough podcast. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Yeah, I'm excited to have this conversation today as we're talking about women in the Bible and just some of the forgotten stories. And so as we jump in, share a little bit of your faith journey with us. Like, when did you begin walking with Christ? Just Mm -hmm. briefly what that's looked like along the way. Yeah, thanks for the question. I grew up in Ohio, North Central Ohio, and um, I actually grew up in a Hindu household. My parents are Hindu. And um, I became a Christian uh, as a teenager through my brother, who be who was really influenced by Campus Crusade for Christ. Awesome. Um, and, uh, you know, I was immediately just on fire for the Lord, 16-year-old. I went to church like before that, I'd never gone to church. And then I went to church like five times a week. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to everything our church offered, every prayer group, every, you know, I wanted to be a missionary. And um, just, you know, the gospel just just hit me hard. You know, I just mm. needed God was offering. And so I gladly embraced it. And, you know, I went to uh, Grace Brethren Church. It was a wonderful, rich fellowship community. Mm. They embraced me wholeheartedly. We focused on prayer. We focused on scripture memorization, scripture reading, mm. fellowship, um, all the good things. And you know, just in terms of what I thought Christianity was all about, um, I think that church did a wonderful job for the two years I was, you know, there until I went to college. Just in terms of relationships between men and women, it was a very traditional environment where. You know, men were the pastors and elders and women were largely in supportive roles. You know, we'd have women up front singing and we had a women's director of children's ministry. So it's not that women were absent, but there was just this kind of sentiment that that, that we're trying to preserve a certain biblical, quote unquote, biblical culture that we want to protect. 
it wasn't sold in any way, but it was it was modeled that way. That was kind of what I had received. I didn't really think anything of it because of the kind of rural, uh, you know, yeah, ur same. suburban area that I lived in. It, it, nobody complained about it. I didn't hear women whispering, you know, these men, you know, anything like that. Um, it wasn't really until I went to seminary that I started to see that there are other traditions that look at the Bible differently. And that really, that really shook me up and caused me to rethink some things. Mm. I want to go so many places right now because even that, like that there were different traditions that read the Bible differently. Mm -hmm. So often what I hear in circles that I'm in is, well, I mean, we got to, we got to stay true to the word. And if you stay true to the word, it's very straightforward. And yeah. there's just no mistaking. And that's not just in regards to women. That's in regards to so many things. And often mm -hmm. I'll say, well, if it was that straightforward, we wouldn't have so many denominations, right? Mm -hmm. Do you feel like yeah. you hear that a lot? Like that argument of, well, it's very straightforward and you just got to adhere to what the Bible says. Oh my gosh. I can't tell you how many tweets, <laughs> messages, emails I get you know, over time, but especially in the last month of people that kind of scoff mm. at me and others and say, we're twisting the Bible, we're, yeah. um, we're reading into it culture. We could talk about this later, but I, I, mm -hmm. I just gave a lecture to my students called, are you afraid of the boogeyman of culture? Because there's this fear that, uh, you know, even with my book that what I'm doing is I'm trying so hard to look at the Roman world, to look at the ancient Jewish world, to try to shove stuff into the Bible that's not there, mm. that it becomes this boogeyman that we're afraid of. Oh no, Nijay's gonna talk about culture again. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> or, or even modern culture where you know people say, oh Nijay, you're only writing on this because of feminism, because yeah. of women's rights, because of you know all of that. So it is, I do get, a lot of criticisms that I'm not willing just to read the Bible on its own terms. One of the pushbacks I give to that, and I don't, this might be too strong of a, of a response, but one of the responses I give is that's the exact same argument that these people are using against me that was used to support slavery in the 19th century. Mm. They would say to the abolitionists, the plain reading of scripture is that slavery is good. Slavery we would okay. never do that now. We wouldn't do that now. We would say, no, no, no. You know, that's, we have to be able to see beyond what's written in scripture to see a bigger vision, but then also to look at things in scripture like Galatians 3, neither slave nor free, you know, look at Philemon. We could point to things, but, but there are clear passages in scripture that support slavery in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And so what I say to people is, um, could it be that way with women as well, where you have the world into which Christianity came, which mm -hmm. was a patriarchal slaveholding world, yeah. and the Christians at that time, instead of saying, we're going to chuck everything, they're going to say, we're going to bring Christ into these places seeking transformation because we can't just snap our fingers and make slavery go away. And, you know, we have to do the hard work after that to say, maybe slavery is a bad thing. And now... Maybe patriarchy is a bad thing too. I just opened up Pandora's box it's for great. you. You can follow it, up it's however okay. you want. <laughs> this episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. 
So, whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. My husband has been speaking recently. We've just been talking back and forth, and I think that patriarchy, the, the word itself, makes some people put their fingers in their ears and go, la, 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 because mm. there's a lot of different ways to even define what we're talking about when we say that word. Yeah. So in view of your book, which is Tell Her Story, we're going to dive into that a little bit. How would you say that maybe you're defining what you mean by patriarchy? One I would say is structural patriarchy. Structural patriarchy is where you have a system where men uh, hold the highest amount of power. And so the Roman world was patriarchal. Ancient right. Israel was patriarchal. Um, and the word patriarchy, you know, literally means rule uh, or power of the father. So it has this idea that the household is the kind of building block of society. And in the Roman world, for example, legal social power was put in the hands of men. So it's kind of think about in America where we have like some privileges that belong only to citizens, right? Right. So we have many things available to, you know, undocumented people, you know, let's say healthcare or education, but then some things that aren't, right? So then in the same way in the Roman world, you know, power was especially placed or, or placed with the, with the greatest amount of freedoms for the male of the household, you know, and that, that's the world into which Christianity came. We can also talk about ideological patriarchy. And I want to make them different because a lot of people live in a patriarchal world without ever thinking about patriarchy. But I think it's our responsibility to make sure, you know, we as Christians are thinking through power and how power works in, in the world and in the environments in which we are. So I think an ideological concept of patriarchy has a belief, whether you are aware of it or not, carries a belief that men are superior to women. In some way. And I think that comes out in these conversations where if you press people, okay, why can't a woman be an elder in a church? Right. Mm -hmm. And they say, oh, the Bible says, but why does the Bible say that in your view? And then now we're digging down. And some people just kind of say, you know, relinquishment, it's just the way it is. But when yeah. it comes to ethical issues, that's not good enough. <laughs> right. I want to know why I'm behaving a certain way if it, if it feels wrong. Uh, yeah. Or if it's going to cause harm to somebody, right? I want to yeah. know why. It's not. It's not enough. The, the Trinity is a mystery. That's fine. I don't understand the Trinity, and I can't <laughs> explain it to you. That's fine. But if it's an ethical thing, I want to know why I'm doing it or not doing it. And so, ideological patriarchy, um, I don't believe is biblical, and mm. um, I talk about that in my book. Yeah, because. Again, I think someone would say, "Well, isn't that the way God set it up in the beginning?" Well, 
after the fall. Um, and that also could open up a huge discussion. And then you go into the book by first laying out who Deborah was and why it matters to pay, why it matters that we should pay attention to the role that she served and really Israel's making, I don't want to say making of a nation, but um, in the way they moved into the promised land. Mm-hmm. Flesh that out a little bit. Like, why is that so important? And does that speak to those people who say, well, that's the way God set it up? Women or men are in charge. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'll say a couple <laughs> of preliminary things and I'll dive into a couple of these stories. I set my book up differently. You know, when when a publisher approached me and said, you know, we'd like you to write a book on this subject because I'd already done some blog posts. I did a 22 series, 22 post series blog post on why I believe in women ministry a handful of years ago. And then a publisher approached me and said, hey, this this would make a great book. And I, at first I said, I don't know if I have anything new to say, but then when I was thinking about what I would want to do differently, the approach that many people take is they start with the, what we call prohibition passages, means don't, I don't permit women or don't do this, or women should be silent, kind of the no-nos, uh, the big red signs with the X, you know, that mm-hmm. people start there and I don't ignore those passages. I talk about them. They're at the end of the book, but What I found fascinating in my study of the Bible over the last 15 years as a professional is really these stories of women doing leadership at the highest level, at the front lines, um, as models of the faith, as models of leadership. Um, And so my approach is to say, we have to be able to somehow align these prohibition passages like 1 Timothy 2, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 with the actual stories of what women are doing. It's not enough just to say these prohibition passages rule and then who cares what the stories say. They're all part of scripture. Absolutely. Um, And so it's kind of, you know, the way I explain it sometimes is like a crime scene where if you just walk into a crime scene and you, your job is to construct a theory (laughs) about what happened and you have to take all of the evidence into consideration. Mm -hmm. You can't just say, you know, we have a bloody knife. So this, you have to say, we have a bloody knife, but the person that we think owns that knife has an alibi. You have to take all that information. You can't just say, we have a weapon. That's it. And, and we've say, seen we have- what happens when people do that. Someone is wrongfully charged, which goes, <laughs> That's per- right. I mean, right? Like, yeah. It's wrongfully applied. No, that's good. That that adds to the illustration. It paints a picture. Um, and so I think people start with, hey, if if we just I can't tell you how many times people have just said, Nije needs to read First Timothy. Nije needs to read First Corinthians. Let me just say officially on the air, I've read all the passages. More than once. <laughs> More than once. And in Greek. Um, but What I do in my book is I say the stories of women actually show us that God sends and supports Mm -hmm. women who are doing top level front lines ministry. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to give an illustration, then I'll go into Deborah. I'm a big soccer fan. Uh, It's a big thing here where I live in the Pacific Northwest. And when they're deciding how to start the game, right, the coaches figure out who they're going to put in their starting lineup and you put your best players in the starting lineup, right? You sub people at the end who may be your second string, third string, you know, but for the last five minutes, but the beginning you put in your best people. And the illustration I want to use is we see God 
putting women in the starting lineup. They're not subs at the end, you know, 91st minute. Like, they're being put in the starting lineup. And Deborah's a great example of that. Some yeah. people uh, make up kind of things about Deborah, like she's there to shame men or she was there only because of man, you know, that sort of thing. But she's, you know, she's on the attack at the very beginning of the game. And so let's just talk quickly about Deborah, because even though the book is mostly about the New Testament, I couldn't help but talk about Deborah because I feel like she silences a lot of the unfair stereotypes that are used about women as incapable of leadership because they're emotional or better at nurturing, quote unquote, nurturing or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Deborah really defies those stereotypes. Let me give you kind of a 30 second sketch and you can follow up. So um, I taught a course in the Book of Judges, which I feel like was providential about 10 years ago. And the Book of Judges has Israel in one of its darkest ages. They had gone into the land, as God had said, but they, were, they hadn't driven out the Canaanites as they were told to do in Deuteronomy. And so they were suffering the consequences, meaning they were plagued by idolatry. They were plagued by their enemies attacking them all the time. They just couldn't thrive. It's like having pesky neighbors, right? They just couldn't find a way to thrive in the land. They didn't have Joshua, who was kind of the next Moses because he had died. And then they didn't have kings yet. So they're in this kind of waiting period. Right. And they needed leadership to get them on track and to protect them from their enemies. So God raised up these judges. And these judges were temporary leaders, temporary. They were the top people for a short period of time. Mm -hmm. And so Gideon, Samson, right? You have this list of people and Deborah is the only woman, but she's given two whole chapters. So we know a lot about Deborah and she is unique for a couple of reasons. One is she's a prophet, which means she's a spokesperson for God. Yeah. And secondly, even though they're called judges, none of them actually judge except Deborah. Oh, so when you think yeah. of a judge as someone sitting, uh, you know, at a, seat of of judicial power right kind of like supreme court and i just imagine a long line of people with gripes against each other <laughs> and she's calling the next person like the bailiff you know call the next person up you know this it's, the sun is beating down on them and you know they're walking up and what is she saying she's saying i want to hear what case you have against each other and and we're going to use torah mm -hmm. as the platform to settle this right there's no secular constitution. There's no, you know, this is what it is. So she's the executive leader. She's a judicial leader. She's a spiritual leader. And she's the one advising Barack. So in many ways, she's the military leader as well. Mm -hmm. And she goes into war reluctantly, but she does. So Deborah stands out to me. And then a whole song is sung in her honor because people want to say, oh, Deborah was kind of second class. You know, she wasn't, she was a second choice. But actually the song of Deborah tells us the opposite. It celebrates her leadership. It celebrates her victory. Mm -hmm. The victory of the war is her victory, if you read that song. It, it starts out with her and Barack, who's a military leader, and then he fades out of the picture, and really at the end, it's just about her. It's a beautiful thing, and it tells us who she is. Scripture remembers her as one of the greatest leaders in Israel's history. Mm. I know, right? And we have to wrestle with that in light of what type of positions God will put women into. And so 
That's one of those things too, where I'm like, you know, people ask that question, what would you ask God when you get to heaven? And I'm like, well, could women preach and tell me a little more about Deborah and why'd you leave out Holda's like, or Holda? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you tell me a little more about Holda? I want to hear about her. But anyways, tell me this, you really in the book do a great job at dispelling some myths that we have about women's roles in the New Testament. And I know this is kind of jumping a little bit further along, but I just want to know it. When I mention these myths, if you'll just give us a little bit of an overview of how those are false narratives, um, maybe not totally false, but like you said, a myth. The first one is wives were always under the legal authority of their husbands. Yes. Yeah, so this, the Roman world, so this is the first century in which early Christianity. Jesus was born, early Christianity came to be. And okay, let me start out with why I talk about these myths. Okay. So I'm gonna get a little controversial here, <laughs> a little spicy. I think the whole um, this whole thing is going to be for most of my life. I guess you're right. I guess you're right. <laughs> um, so you know, a, a few years ago, you know, the kind of, you know, two words heard around the world was go home, where um, John MacArthur was at a some conference and uh, Beth, uh, who I love, by the way, uh, she she was preaching up a storm. I would call it preaching uh, and traveling and speaking out against some of the uh, bad things that were happening in her tradition at the time, which was the SBC. Mm -hmm. uh, she since left it while still loving it and praying for it. Um, yeah. And 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 so someone asked John MacArthur, and this felt almost like a mockery if you watch the video, if it's still out there, but um, the way it was asked kind of sets mm -hmm. it up to be parody or mockery. You know, John MacArthur, what two words come to mind when I say the words Beth Moore? Yeah. And he said, go home. And that those two words have been analyzed and scrutinized. And I don't know exactly what he meant, uh, if he meant temporarily or if he meant ideologically, theologically. Whatever he meant, it does reflect a certain attitude that in order to be biblical, we have to establish the right place for women to be and the wrong place. So the right place is the home and the wrong place is the pulpit or whatever, however you imagine that the public, you know, however you imagine that. Right. And when people kind of say they want to reclaim biblical womanhood, and biblical manhood, I think what they're trying to say is let's go back to the New Testament, which is the first century. I think what they're actually trying to do is go back to the 1940s. They're, they're kind of imagining a bygone era, leave it to beaver, I call it, the leave it to beaver mm -hmm. era where the wife is wearing an apron, she has fresh baked cookies. When the husband comes home with his briefcase, you know, and in his suit from a hard day at work, he wants to put his feet up and listen to the radio. And as I was studying the ancient Roman world, the world in which Christianity emerged, there are some basic sketches of that but I was shocked at what I found women were actually doing and the lives of women. While, this, while the legal structure of the Roman world was patriarchal, women were not, do not always fit the leave it to beaver uh, or the little right. house on the prairie model. And so that first myth was this idea that women were under the power of their husbands. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to use a little bit of technical terminology here, but scholars talk about two types of marriage in the first century in the Roman world legally. One was manus marriage, which means you agree to be married, right? Two families come together and the wife, manus means hand, the wife, the wife's family agrees that she will be placed into the hand of the husband, meaning under the power and authority 
of the husband. Okay. There's another kind of marriage called sine manu marriage, which means without the hand. And that means hmm. they join families and she comes into his household, but she retains her identity under the leadership of her own father. Okay. That means she's entering in this marriage, but she's not technically under the authority of her husband. And, and that gives her some measure of independence. And she might have separate money. She might have separate property. She might have separate slaves. And okay. uh, one thing I learned about that is sine manu marriage became the dominant type of marriage in the first century, the era of early Christianity. Hmm. Now that opens up some things because Paul does say, and Peter, wives be submissive to your husbands. Mm -hmm. I think what Paul is recognizing is in all of these sine manu marriages, where the wife is not technically, there could be rivalry between the families, mm -hmm. right? Some power struggles, some money struggles, you know? And I think Paul is saying, I want there to be harmony in the house. I don't want there to be this, these turf wars. That opens up some new ways of looking at these texts beyond just the 1940s domestic wife. We have to enter the complexity of the Roman world and see that world for itself before we can get a really, really good sense of what Paul was saying and not saying. Yeah, I mean, because submissive, again, doesn't mean mousy mm -mm. or you just get to be instructed and bossed around by your spouse, even if you do just read it for what it is. Right. <laughs> I mean, even if you don't know the Greco-Roman world, I'm like, it doesn't necessarily, to me anyway, submissive doesn't mean that I just don't ever have an opinion or that I sit at home and only do what modern Christianity has said is appropriate for me to do. Yeah, absolutely. And you kind of dispelled the second myth, which is women can't own property. And um, the idea that women lived private lives in the home. Um, will you talk about that one a little bit? Because I always want to point out as well, and Jasmine Holmes does this as well, about how the culture of that time, and honestly, even if you go to um, some Eastern cultures now, like the idea that you even have people working in your home all the time. I know when I was in India, not that many years ago, women who were in their home caring for their family almost always have someone they're paying also working in their home because it's expected mm -hmm. of you if mm -hmm. you have a certain amount of money that you're going to help employ other people to be helpful which is a different way to look at a servant. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's a cultural type difference as well. So what do you say to, to that? You know, women lived private lives in the home. We have to think that in the ancient world, homes were both private and public. Mm. And so instead of thinking about, you know, like, when I'm home, I like to wear my pajamas. I like, you know, I don't want people like peeking into my house, you know, that sort of thing. I, like, I feel like I don't even like when people ring my doorbell, <laughs> like, like a solicitor, because I, it's, it's a private space. Like, I want you to stay away. But the pandemic really opened up some interesting things because people are working from home. So they're working on Zoom. So, for example, you and I are looking at each other right now. And even though... I'm working because I'm a professor and writer. And so I'm talking right. to you as part of my profession. You're looking into my house. Right. Right. And so in some sense, this is my office where privately I'm working in here a lot, but also it's public because people see into my house every week. My students see into my house every week. 
you know, just in this sort of way. And in the ancient world, it was a lot like that. Um, you would have sections of your house that were very public, kind of mm -hmm. like your front porch, but they had different ways of expressing that. And people could gather there. People often held parties, right. not just for entertainment, but for doing kind of good in the in the community. And so um, this idea that John MacArthur's go home, mm. that means something different in the modern world than it meant in the ancient world. If he said that to an ancient woman, it wouldn't really capture the meaning that he wanted, right? Because the home was a place of work. Right. It was a place of entertaining people. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a place of doing public business and all kinds of things. So uh, let's just talk a little bit about homes because one thing that I think many Christians know, but they haven't really let it sink in in terms of this subject is churches met in homes. Yeah, And probably in bigger cities like Corinth and Rome, you know, some of the bigger churches, by big church, I mean like 50 to 100 people. <laughs> some of the bigger that churches. sounds delightful. Yeah, right. <laughs> some of the bigger churches come to Portland because our big churches are like 200 people. So you would expect a, a little bit wealthier, you know, more high status person, a Christian, to open their home up to a Christian gathering of 30, 40 people for a meal, for right. prayer, for worship. So you afford a little bit of privacy because you have four walls, but you can have a space where you can have a meal. And then you have a leader in that household, um, like Philemon or Stephanus, who's mentioned in 1 Corinthians, or Gaius, who's mentioned in 1 Corinthians, or Priscilla and Aquila, who are mentioned in Romans and Acts uh, and other places as well. And so we know that houses were the default place mm. for churches to meet for a variety of reasons. But I, I would say one of the biggest reasons is, and I, I'm, I'm working on some of this research now that I didn't put in the book, Jesus and the apostles emphasized Christians as a family. Mm. <laughs> so I think there was actually not just a practical reason they met in homes, but a theological reason that they met in homes. They okay. wanted to remind people that we are a family mm. and we have a meal together like a family. And we pray for another, one another, care for another like a family. So then in that family, in that context, it was actually possible in a regular family to have a woman as the leader of a family. So a good example would be Lydia. She and her household is converted in the book of Acts in Philippi. And that is classic, classic way of expressing that she's the head of her own household. That, mm. that was not uncommon in the roman world to have a woman be the head of her household uh, literally a household ruler and even in first timothy chapter 5 verse 14 paul is talking about these young widows who are kind of mooching off of the church's resources yeah. and she tell these widows get married have children and become rulers of your house that would be unusual language hmm to many of us in the modern world, because we don't think of women as rulers. But he right. actually uses the word ruler, be rulers of your house. The same word ruler there, despot, is used of God as sovereign Lord Oh wow! Um, throughout the Bible. And so he's telling these women, um, instead of taking money from the church, because you're young and you're healthy and you can work, you can create income. Instead of being down here taking money, you know, you need to be up here because the old widows, he says 80 years or older, that's pretty old at that time. 
I yeah. feel old and I'm in my 40s. Um, so he's saying, <laughs> Amen, brother. Save, yeah, save the treasury, save the treasury of the church for the people that can't work. Right. But he's saying to these women, First Timothy, look it up, everybody. First Timothy 5.14. He's saying, get married, meaning, you know, this partnerships, you know, Manu, or Sine Manu, your choice. Create these relationships so that you can generate money, so you can be generous. And he's telling these women, be good rulers. Be good. Mm. Some of them say like keep house. That's a terrible translation. He's used the word ruler. Be rulers of your house so that you can generate income, so that you can take care of these other widows. We we focus so much on First Timothy two. I think we need to jump to the end and oh, say wow. we need to empower these women to be rulers, to good rulers of their house. And then and and then then we see women like Nympha. We can talk about Nympha later. Priscilla, who are helping to lead house churches, and it's a beautiful thing. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, I had grown, this has been several years ago, to really have a little bit of a chip on my shoulder when it came to Paul. And part of it is just because what I was believing him to, you know, that idea that he just didn't like women. Thankfully, that has been changing over the last year or so. And I love what you wrote. Um, you say, Paul preached harmony between men and women in the home and in the church, and he relied on numerous women leaders as co-workers in the gospel mission, and that he saw no deficiency of intellect, skill, or morality in women. How do we see Paul build women up in the early church? How do we see him partner? And mm -hmm. so often we leave it out of the story, or it just plays a little tiny, tiny part. People continue to ask me, hey, is this is this supporting women in ministry thing? Is this a new thing? Uh, is this a brand new thing because of, you know, civil rights and all of that? You know, how could the church have held on to, you know, patriarchy for so long unless it was right? And part of my response is I start out the book with the illustration of Hidden Figures, which is this yeah. book and movie. I saw the movie about these women who were scientists that are behind some of the great space flight achievements in the 20th century. And I grew up hearing about Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. And I didn't know about these women because their stories were hidden. They, you know, they were kind of buried. And then once you learn about them, you say, gosh, we couldn't have gotten to where we were, or we owe a great debt of gratitude right. for these women. They, you know, and in fact, NASA renamed one of their headquarters after one of those women recently um, as a testimony to their contribution. So the idea that we have forgotten or the idea that we have a blind spot is sensible. It's possible. Yeah. And so where I tend to point people is Romans 16. And the tough thing about Romans 16 is there's a lot in Romans 1 through 11 that <laughs> yeah. people don't really have the energy. Uh, <laughs> to if you're going to lead a six-week Bible study, you know, chances are you're not going to make it to Romans 16. <laughs> Although I hope now people are going to, because there's so much goodness in there. And Paul gives a number of greetings, but he's not just saying hello. He mm. is really treasuring and honoring these people because of the things that he says about them. So he mentions, you know, I think about 30 people and one third of those people, about one third are women. And I think we don't really know that as we read it, because we can't tell the difference between men and women's names, like Persis. I have to keep looking up some of these, like, is Urbanus a man or a Persis, you know? Tryphena and Tryphosa and some of those. Mary, we know, Mary of Rome, but some of the other ones we don't know. 
And what I find really interesting about that list is they all seem to be Christian leaders because of the kinds of things he says about them. Mm. And he doesn't genderize his commendation. He doesn't say, you women have been so sweet and supportive and you men have been rough and tough. <laughs> you know, he doesn't do that. He actually, um, one scholar said, if we, if we took the names out, just blurred them out, we wouldn't be able to tell who's a man and who's a woman based on what Paul says about them. The main thing he says about Christian leaders, he says two things. One, they're beloved. He says it about men and he says it about women. Uh, and I think beloved means like, aren't you the best? Aren't you just the best? Like when we see a leader, we were just talking about uh, before we started recording our, our mutual friend, Tyler Staten. And I think our sentiment was he's the best. Like that's why we would say <laughs> my beloved <laughs> brother, my beloved brother, Tyler. Um, and Paul's doing that for men and women. And the second thing he says, I think this is really important. They worked hard. They worked mm. hard in ministry, hmm. right? They have grit and determination. They're committed to the cause. Mm. He doesn't genderize it. God wants women leaders to be gentle and he wants male leaders to be gentle. Mm. He wants women leaders to be courageous and he wants male leaders to be courageous. So that really opened up some things that Paul has kind of, a, I refer to as a blind approach to leadership, where he just says like, who's yeah. the best person to put in the starting lineup? Who's our uh. best attacker? Who's our best defender? Let's put those people in. Like, let's not judge, prejudge them based on, oh, men, women make better defenders, men make better attackers. No, let's put in the best person for the job. Who's gonna work hard? Who's gonna show grit and determination? Um, and, and he commends them just like that. And we have a bunch of people on this list. I want to mention Junia because she's one of my favorite. I feel like if I could only say two things about the stories of women in the New Testament, I might focus on Deborah and Junia. Because again, if there's the question, can we let a woman be an elder? Like, what, you, know, you know, that's pretty high level. Should we be putting them into that level of leadership? You know, they can you know, they can, you know, give a testimony up front or, you know, they can. We're just trying to get there, man. <laughs> yeah. But, but Junia to me defies a lot of our stereotypes. And, you know, there's some controversies about Junia based on some translation issues, but I'll give you my take. And then, you know, we could talk about why scholars disagree, but four or five things are said about Junia and the male name that's associated with her Andronicus, uh, which I think her husband and wife, could be brother and sister, but it makes more sense, their husband and wife. So he says they are Jewish, which means Paul usually mentions that because he feels an affinity, a special connection to fellow right. Jews. Second, they are older in the faith than Paul, which is really hmm. interesting because we don't meet a lot of those people. Right. Other than the disciples, we don't meet a lot of people that became Christian before Paul. <laughs> right. Um, we're talking like Acts chapters, you know, one through four. Um, and that's 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 pretty early. Yeah. He says they've been in prison hmm. for the gospel. And, you know, we're not talking like overnight drunk tank prison, uh, jail time. That's we're talking right. like serious crimes. Yes. Read the When you read the book of Acts, you see Paul accused of serious crimes. He has to right. appeal to Caesar. He goes on this, you know, high seas journey to get to Rome. Pretty serious stuff where he has, they have to appear before a magistrate and all of that. So... That means that they are considered, Rome imprisoned people for being a threat to the order, the good yeah. order of society. Somehow Junia got on their radar and you don't do that if you're just hanging out at home. Leading right? a quiet you know, life. Yeah, you don't, you don't do I that. Don't. You get on their radar for doing dangerous 
perhaps treasonous public ministry. So I think the most likely scenario is they were out preaching the gospel, Andronicus and Junia, and they're rounded up by uh, Roman soldiers for inciting a riot or a mob like Paul does again and again in the book of Acts. Yeah. I mean, if we're, if we're talking about they didn't commit crimes like murder or, you know, right. grand theft, right? If we're talking about things that Christians would be proud of, <laughs> right. we're talking about them doing public facing ministry. Women were rarely, rarely in prison in the Roman world. I mean, we're talking minuscule numbers. Wow. And so it has to be pretty serious for a soldier to say, lock this woman up. It's going to be pretty serious. And then the way Paul talks about her, she wears a badge of honor. They wear a badge of honor for that kind of ministry. To him, it's like the purple heart. <laughs> it's his purple heart. Yes. Of, well, I mean, that is, that's like something that we can relate to, right? Like we understand, yeah. we can say, oh yeah, I mean, she took the bullet, quote unquote, right? Yeah. But yeah, so yeah, tell exactly. me this, like what, what are scholars' arguments against that? Well, the main argument is actually on the last thing that's said about her, which is that they are prominent among the apostles. And what scholars uh, argue about is, theoretically, there are two ways to translate that phrase in Greek. One is prominent as apostles, which is the way I translate it. And then there's prominent to the apostles, meaning they are not apostles themselves, but the apostles mm -hmm. are looking outside of their group at Andronicus Junian saying, these are commendable Christians. Now, to me, if they are Jewish and older in the faith than Paul, then what group are they a part of, if not the apostles? I mean, it, it, right. if Paul kind of comes in as the last of the apostles, he says that in First Corinthians, um, it makes sense. I think why people have trouble with it is one, some people don't like the idea of Junia as a female apostle. Two is the apostles sound like a really closed group of 12. And Paul just kind of wiggled his way in there. It's kind of like shoving yourself into a, a full elevator. You know, Paul just kind of got himself in there somewhere. But other people are called apostles as well, like Barnabas. Yeah. Um, and so what I think is there were the 12, which were kind of the most inner circle of the apostles, the kind of yep. knighthood, you know, the dubbed yeah. apostles. But then I think there was an apostolic school or community mm. of leaders. And we'd learn about that from the Gospel of Luke, where he talks about 70 disciples yeah. Yeah. that were sent out in mission. And one church father, someone writing, and I think in the third, four, third or fourth century named Origen, says that he thinks Andronicus and Junia were sent out as one of the pairs among the 70, meaning, mm -hmm. and this kind of blows my mind, they could have been followers of Jesus in his ministry. Wow. The plausibility of that is they're Jewish. They're mm -hmm. older in the faith than Paul, so they fit the profile. Right. I always thought they'd be male pairs, but actually you go back to Luke, he's very interested in men and women pairs in parables, men and women pairs like um, Elizabeth and Zacharias, Anna and Simeon. Yeah. Um, he's very interested in these pairs, so it would make sense that these are male-female rather than male-male pairs, because if they're going out to minister to households, it'd be really safe and comfortable to have a man and woman talking to a man and a woman. Wow. Oh my goodness. My brain. It is. It's on fire right now. It's being blown. <laughs> and I mean, I haven't made it all the way through the book, but I'm at least right. halfway through and yeah. I already am like highlighting, you know, highlighting, highlighting. <laughs> so, um, okay. Well, I, I do want to read this review and then have you 
Well, well, let me read it first and then I'll um, ask you the question. A reviewer wrote, many of us grow in faith without ever seeing the women of scripture as important, even central figures to the narratives of what God is accomplishing in his kingdom. In some cases, we are taught to actively dismiss the roles of these individuals as outliers or even mistranslations of scripture. In the book, you explain, no, seminary didn't turn me liberal, <laughs> but that your shift toward inclusion of women in ministry and recognition of women participating in God's kingdom came as a direct result of your encounters with scripture. Will you speak to teachers of the word? How can they begin to shift that narrative in how they teach if they're open to it? Mm -hmm. I would say don't be afraid to read scholarship or books on different <laughs> sides of a subject. I think, you know, I talk about it with my students. I'm teaching a class right now on uh, hermeneutics, which is just a big fancy word for the <laughs> philosophy and practice of biblical interpretation. And one of the things I talk about in that class is the fear of contamination, meaning if mm, I read yes. those people on the other side, I'm going to get their cooties. Yep. And I'm going to get infected. Now I'm going to be liberal or I'm going to be conservative or whatever the other, whatever yep. thing you don't want. And um, I try to teach my students, you know, read everything, like be confident in your own intelligence that, you know, my, my friend AJ Swoboda, he says, you know, eat the meat and spit out the bones. Yes. Um, Chew and spit. That's what yeah, Mama that's Bear right. Apologetics said. I don't that's necessarily right. agree on everything that she teaches, but she calls it the chew and spit method. Like learn to keep in what you agree with and spit out what you don't because there's good in all and there's bad in all <laughs> yeah and i think we live in especially since 2016 i think we live in an era of great isolation and of kind of throwing grenades from a distance mm -hmm. at those other people and what's easy to do is to say those people on the other side are evil that's right those people on the other side are sinister Mm -hmm. And it takes faith and it takes humility to say, I'm not going to just absorb and take everything from the other side, but do I have something to learn? Yeah. And in order to bring those walls down in this class I teach, one of my mantras or one of my statements I use is, as a Christian, you're not responsible to accept the opinions of others, but you are responsible to be affected and influenced by their values. Mm. So you can actually learn from anybody, even your enemy, if you can be influenced by their values while not necessarily taking on all of their action points. And if we have that posture, then you can read Bodley and you can say, gosh, out of a hundred things, I didn't take everything, but I learned this one thing that's been really helpful. I can walk mm -hmm. away with this one thing. Mm. Um, and I think that is really beneficial. And so, you know, I try to read a swath of different things. And and one of the big takeaways for me after writing this book was all the places I used to have these boxes when I was in high school and college, these really clear boxes of what women can be doing and not doing. Right. And what I found through writing books on Philippians and first that second Thessalonians and Galatians and some of the gospels is women keep popping up in the quote unquote wrong places. So, for example, take Philippi, Philippians. The church was probably 20 to 30 people, and we don't know the names of very many people in that church. But incidentally, 
we know the names of a few. And what's interesting is you can name more women than you can men in the church. And the women that are named tend to be leaders. So we can name uh, Epaphroditus, who's a man. We can name Clement, who's a man. And then you have Euodia and Syntyche, who are women, Philippians 4. And you have Lydia. And Lydia appears to me to be a leader because when the disciples get out of jail, when the apostles in Philippi, they go to her house. Why do they go to her house? Because believers were gathering there. And people Mm -hmm. have said, oh, she could have just been hosting. This is a failure to understand what hosting meant. Like I understand in modern day young life, you can have a host of a young life gathering that has no relationship to the gathering, except they've opened up their house. Right. That's the consciousness that we use. But in the ancient world, Mm -hmm. someone that owns a big house tends to be managing a lot there. And they tend to be, you know, assuming they have good Christian character, a leader because people will look to them for leadership. If you look at the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy and Titus, what is repeated about what a Christian leader should be? Mm. A good household manager. Mm. Why? Because those are the same skills you need to lead a church. And so when you put together Yodin Sintiki, part of the things that Paul says is they wrestle side by side. They strive side by side with me for the Mm -hmm. gospel. That's his language for leadership. And Paul doesn't use titles. He doesn't say Pastor Bob. Right. He doesn't say Elder Mark. He doesn't use titles. And actually, one of the times he used them was Phoebe. He says Diakonos Phoebe, which you could translate minister. We get the word minister from the Latin Diakonos, the Latin minister, which corresponds to the Greek Diakonos. You call a deacon, whatever you want. He actually refers to her as a church leader, but rarely does he use a title. Most of the time he says they worked hard. They care for you right? They struggle for the gospel. Their names are written in the book of life. Now, all of our names are in the book of life, but he means they get a special page (laughs) in the book of life because they're doing the hard work of ministry. Wow. Oh my goodness. Okay. Let's close with this. Women like me who are reading different things than what they Mm -hmm. used to read or maybe what they were taught and also still participating and reading things that have a very Um, I don't want to use conservative view because that's not fair either, but um, (laughs) a view that I should just stay at home Mm -hmm. and take care of my babies, which I think is a great thing as well. Mm -hmm. What encouragement do you have for the people like us that we're continually encountering that pushback, that, um, you know, those comments, that rejection when we're in these really conservative spaces, because I don't know a better word to use. You know, one thing I'm really inspired by is Luke chapter eight and the women that followed Jesus. So Mm -hmm. you have Mary Magdalene and you have Joanna and you have others, Susanna, you have Mary, the mother of Jesus. uh, And it mentions quote unquote other women. And I imagine that those women had some mental struggle. What are the consequences of me because these women are you know not with their husbands apparently um Mm. what are the consequences these women you know i'm imagining them standing by their door with their hand on the handle thinking what am i doing (laughs) you know jesus is out there like you know let's go ladies you know (laughs) and they're just and they're leaving their household what am i doing like what am i doing so my encouragement is jesus there's never anything wrong and and there's always everything right with just following Jesus, wherever he leads, receiving his teaching, 
and then obeying that. I mean, that is to me pri always priority number one. Everything else is secondary to that. And we have this assumptions, oh, you know, someone needs to be doing this. Someone needs to be, uh, who's going to take care of this? What were those women thinking when they were, and then Jesus is, and what's interesting, it says in Luke chapter eight, if you read it, it says, and they supported his ministry out of their resources. Yes. So it's funny, like they, <laughs> I just imagine them cracking the door open saying, Jesus, I'm not, I'm not so sure I should be leaving home. And he says, you need to get out here and bring your wallet. <laughs> right. <laughs> And then one thing that's beautiful, because he wasn't using them for their money, but one thing that's beautiful is at the very end of the Gospels, this is especially in the Gospel of Luke, Luke is very sensitive to the lives of women, leadership of women, and the angels talk to these women at the tomb, the empty tomb, and they say, they scold the women and say, why are you so confused and afraid? Because he was going to suffer, die, and rise just as he taught you. You, mm. not he taught the men and you happen to be standing nearby. Oh, or yeah. you were wow. in like the mezzanine or balcony section, like mm. they're being held responsible for the teaching of Jesus. And then they're sent off. And so what I'd say to, to women who are experiencing that apprehension is the essence of the gospel is following Jesus, right? Yeah. Dietrich Bonhoeffer's famous book, Discipleship, which ended up later being called the cost discipleship. The German word is Nachfolge, which means following after. It's, it's yeah. a verb. And I love that as the way I think about discipleship. Discipleship is not a set of practices or, you know, a set of tools. It's keeping up on the heels of Jesus. Mm. So I say to those women, including my wife, who's, who's in ministry uh, as a pastor, sometimes you have to just put blinders on <laughs> to what's going on around you and just say, I'm going to read scripture. I'm going to read the gospels and I'm going to do what these women did. Yeah. and leave the house behind um, or leave whatever baggage or whatever criticisms behind and say, I'm going to keep up with Jesus. He's on the move and I'm going to keep wow. up with him because he has things to teach me and he's going to send me with responsibilities like he did these women. AJ, thank you. Mm -hmm. I mean, seriously, like you probably hear that a lot, but I know you receive a lot of criticism and kickback. Sometimes. And so I'm just grateful that's all I know to say is that I'm grateful. Thank you. You made it to the end. And aren't you glad? If your brain is spinning like mine, I encourage you to add Nijay's book, Tell Her Story, to your to-be-read list. If you purchase from the link in my show notes, I earn a small commission at no cost to you. Visit graceenoughpodcast.com slash women for the link. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough Podcast. Tune in next time. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.